This is a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Einstein and Go-Go. You are listening to 3RRR. I'm Dr. Shane. In the studio with me is Dr. Laura. Good morning. Good morning, Dr. Shane. You sound cheeky. <laughs> I kind of feel like we've half done the show already. We've discussed so much science. Well, yeah, well, you have. Ray, Ray and I were just listening. Good morning, Ray. Good morning, Dr. Shane. See, he's chirpy too. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I've just been laughing for like 20 minutes. So, yeah, yeah. Uh, it's, um, mm. We've been trying to work out, folks, whether Dr. Laura is funny. And we're going to take a poll. <laughs> oh, well, we, we, let, let's not. I mean, we already covered the laugh with versus at yeah. issue and, you know. I think the consensus was that I was funny. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. Come on. See, that's funny. Oh, that, okay, that's awkward laughs. That, in that's, okay. that in itself is funny. Right. Uh, I have been laughing whatever, for three minutes. We've got a couple of guests lined up for you today, folks, which is going to be pretty cool. And we've got some news before that, so we might jump straight into that. Dr. Laura, what have you got for us? Well, okay, I've got a story which I found funny. <laughs> but it's actually it's, it's okay. actually good science as well. But um, wait, I, wait, is this like immunologist humor? <laughs> like two bacteria walk into a bar? Or, sorry, <laughs> this isn't immunology, but it is biology. But I saw a, one story that um, caught my attention was a study that's getting a lot of press. It was published in um, Attica Tropica this week, and it's about how sorry, Attica. A journal about insect biology, oh, okay. top okay. ranking, um, yep. is that dubstep music could be effective against mosquito-borne diseases. And at, I, here at Einstein Go Go, we all know what dubstep music is, right? Uh, I only I, I have a reference from Deadpool too, but I'm still a little <laughs> fuzzy. Yeah. Could you sing some for us? Yep, Dr. Shane, uh, I, can, I cannot. It's electronic. I, I'm music. Dr. Ray. That's Dr. Shane. <laughs> oh, I'm uh, so you are funny. You're funny. No, um, yeah, it's because I'm funny. Yeah. Um, so actually, I did also have to look up dubstep music okay. a little bit. But um, one of the popular electronic artists is Skrillex and what this team of international legitimate scientists did the scientists from the Cayman Islands are they and Malaysia, illegitimate scientists? Time? no of course not Dr Shane um, but they no. were playing electronic songs by Skrillex um, to uh, mosquitoes and they found that it reduced mating and blood feeding and so mosquitoes, why do we care? It's really important because mosquitoes carry a lot of life-threatening diseases like mm. Zika and chikungunya and dengue. And it's already been known for quite some time that sound is really impactful on the development of these uh, mosquitoes, or of mosquitoes in general. So it's known, for example, they will feed less if you play music. Um, that's been known for beetles, but it's never been shown for mosquitoes, right? So, so be- does beetles, it, not the beetles. No, no, beetles. beetles. So actually, um, it came out last year, I don't know if you saw it, but if you play ACDC to lady beetles, they feed less. Wow. Pretty cool stuff. Yeah, I follow this. That might be true for people in general. Wait, though, does it, do, do, for the mosquitoes, did it have to be dubstep? Could you play the beetle? Could you do beetles, or does Beethoven make them eat more? That, that's a great point, Dr. Ray. So they didn't do an, you know, a comprehensive study. They just played the Skrillex song. But the reason why they chose it is because it was classified to be noisy. So what this means is there was a lot of bass, there was a lot of high pitches, there was a lot of vibrations. So um, they, just, they just did it with the one song. Um, but they, what they did is they put... 10 mosquitoes in with, um, get this, they put the, actually the mosquitoes in with a hamster, a restrained hamster, to assess the blood feeding. And if you turn the music on, the mosquitoes visited the hamster less, 
and they, um, if, if the music was on, they, there was less interactions and less um, number of blood feeding. Was the hamster moving around more? No, the, the, the hamster is restrained the whole okay. time. Okay, yeah, because you, know, you can see where I'm going with that. Like, if they're moving around, the mosquitoes. But, um, copulation for mosquitoes, the way that mosquitoes find each other is by acoustic vibrations, by, mm. by you know, beating their wings, right? So um, with copulation, over a 10-minute period when they played the music, um, there was less than one event, one copulation event um, in 10 minutes, whereas there was more than five five copulation events within 10 minutes if the music was off. Hmm. That's statistically significant. So they're not breeding. They're not breeding with so, the music on. So out of, out of curiosity, has anyone ever done a study to see if the number of mosquito bites in a crowd event are less if it's a rock concert compared to something like quiet music at the park? Like, do people get more mosquito bites mm. in the same area? That's an excellent the, point, but the, how would you test it? I'm sure there's a survey and a, a set of legitimate scientists somewhere equal to that task. Mm. Yeah. yeah, and a... Uh, and a um yeah we have Just statistics on the amount of illegal drugs people are taking <laughs> at conference concerts i'm sure there's some way to do mosquito like a, a mosquito bite pre and post survey offering free water or something okay con- so just in case maybe we should be playing like heavy music at our barbecues but like in all seriousness one of the implications is this is is that out sort of um online and being sold in a lot of different places are a lot of electronic mosquito repellent devices yeah. insect right? repellents in insect general. Rep- yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah and so um these rely on ultrasa- u- ultrasonic sounds to ward off mosquitoes and there's mm. also a lot of apps you can play that can ward off with certain pitches and what this study found is that actually ultrasonic is in the wrong range so mm. if you want to interfere with mosquito um, biting and mosquitoes finding each other actually needs to be within the kilohertz range of which their wings are are beating essentially because so, we hear them yeah and we, so we ultrasonic it's too high it's too high and so yeah. the dubstep music was actually in the right range and so it can interfere so the implications are with new devices it should be bringing down the um bringing down the range yeah there's some there's so much interesting stuff there too because it's one thing just to piss them off right i mean that that's that's one thing yeah, you they can can't do. find each other but if you actually you know counter their sounds completely mm-hmm. like you actually put noise in the range where yeah, so this is not just annoying to them, but it actually removes their ability to triangulate where yeah. they are. That that's a whole different yeah, set of sonics. That's that's quite interesting. And yeah. yeah, that'd be fun. See, serious. Very serious. Serious science. Yeah, we thought you were joking, but very serious <laughs> stuff. I did I, I didn't know if that was like a catch to the serious network, the satellite radio. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah, you're doing anyway. Well, very, huh? well, yeah, <laughs> well there's yeah, a satellite good. network called Sirius as well yeah. Yeah, yeah. for music. So yeah, I, he's I serious about that. Know. What do you got, Ray? Um, I'm not sure nearly as exciting. I've got that um, basically if you if you point light at ice, it melts. I, I know, I know that, that doesn't sound really cool, but uh, this is actually a... a With a laser? Actually, that's the interesting part. <laughs> this is a researchers at Hebrew University of Jerusalem used near-IR lasers to melt small little pieces of ice that were in equilibrium with water. Uh, and what happened was is they found a new way to melt ice where they get these twisting labyrinths of patterns in the ice uh, using near-IR lasers. So this is infrared. Think heat lamp you couldn't see would mm. be kind of the, the mm. wavelength. Um, but when, they, when they, they, they started pointing these lasers at these little kind of equilibrated blocks of ice and water, only the ice melts. And, and when it melted, it formed little pits, and then the little pits joined up to little channels, and they made these very intricate patterns and channels that would form and, and reform. But the whole interesting bit was they pointed a heat, we'll say laser, but we'll go with heat ray at ice and water, and the ice melted, but the water doesn't heat up. Mm. And that's because they picked just the right light or just the right wavelengths where the ice absorbs the energy, but the water doesn't. And so they get these, and, and because the ice does, and the water doesn't. That's how they get these really interesting channels mm. and patterns. But they point out 
this might be a new way to defrost things. Now, they said cryopreservation, where um, when you defrost things with microwaves, they work differently. In microwaves, water absorbs, liquid water absorbs energy a thousand times more than ice does. So that's why when you defrost something in the microwave, the water really heats up and you still have ice. Yeah. And then you might do this thing where you, you know, you do half power, but then so it heats up, but then it starts to refreeze at the same time. And that's what makes food go off. And it's also terrible for biological samples when you're studying, because when ice recrystallizes, that's when it can break down organic things, particularly if you're trying to look at a cell. It doesn't do wonders for when mm. you're defrosting something as well. So I, I don't think they're about to invent the next microwave, but they are suggesting that they might be able to optimize this to defrost things like cells that have been frozen where you're trying to defrost them for study or microscopy studies where you could actually get – you could basically point, a la- point heat at something – where only the ice melts and the water doesn't heat up. Mm. So that, that was, it was a really interesting observation. Uh, that they, There have been other studies where if you take a block of ice and you shoot it with a, just ice and shoot it with a laser, you do actually get really cool patterns as well that, of just water melting. They're called inverse snowflakes, mm. which I thought was neat. But, but to be able to see a pattern where you can, you can pick a wavelength of light just right that just the ice melts and the water doesn't was kind of cool mm. the water doesn't heat up you need 3d pattern through it as well because you can get most of it going right through the stuff so. yeah. yeah 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 interesting cool stuff well there's a couple of uh, cool things happening uh well one thing happened that was really cool last week and one thing is happening cool this week so this week um we're going to get hopefully and this is sort of a bit of speculation but everyone thinks this is the case our first ever image of a black hole so there's an international team who've been working on this for a while. So this wait, is an array of telescopes. Why yeah. does this feel like a like a modern art thing? Yeah, you yeah. Know? So, oh, it's so, a black hole. Wait, wait. We got a picture. Yeah, it's yeah, all yeah. black. So, you can't see anything. Yeah, no, exactly. So this is this is something that for you know over 50 years now people have been talking about this because of course the the idea is where the where you have the singularity in a black hole. So this is the point where think of you know very large mass but it's compressed into a very very small space, and the gravitational pull is so strong that. If you you took a star and you put in orbit around this thing, it would orbit in a relatively short period of time, you know, a few years, not not like hundreds of thousands of years or anything. And the gravity is so strong that you get to a point where you're so reasonably close where even light can't escape, mm-hmm. all right? So and this is called the event horizon. Once you go past this point, even something travelling at the speed of light is not fast enough, it can't get out. And so the idea is you wouldn't be able to see anything inside that. But you would be able to see things around this, just outside the event horizon, this accretion sort of disk area where, you know, a lot of interesting stuff is going on. In fact, if you look at the centre of our galaxy, there's this really bright patch and then inside that, this is really dark patch. But we, we haven't really got any images of what this black hole actually looks like. It's very small, it's very hard to image, and we haven't been able to do it. And there's this particular series of telescopes that have been arrayed together. So this is where instead of building one giant telescope, you collect data from multiple telescopes, and then with some fancy software, you kind of pretend they're components of a really big one. So one way to think about this is if you say you had a mirror and you broke that mirror into a thousand pieces and then say okay what about if i just use some of the pieces how much of an image could i still get and you can actually get quite a bit you can do quite a lot you don't need the whole thing to be connected to get a fair bit out of it and so we we array these things together and we end up with something a lot bigger than if we had the individual or we tried to build an individual one and this gives us a lot more information so what we've got here is a scenario where this group well, groups have put all this data together and for many years now they've been Im- imaging Sagittarius A which is the centre of our our galaxy and they 
have sort of hinted that there will be a big announcement this week, and given what they've been doing is trying to image this black hole, everyone thinks that they're going to release an image of the black hole, which I think is a reasonable And over how idea. long have they been collating all the images from uh, the different... Years, years okay. of, of data. So it's, um, the thing is, these, these things, are, uh, they're far away, they're really small, they're really mm-hmm. hard to image. So, And to be fair, no one really knows what this image will look like. You know, there's a million artists' impressions of, of black holes, and in fact, the film Interstellar probably has the best imagery of a black hole that's um, been put out, and I think um, that was done with quite a quite a lot of computer modeling it wasn't just a hey here's how we think it will look it was like let's model what we think this actually looks like and apparently those models were very well regarded by the physics community so yeah but a lot of times there's a hollywood flair like one of the the comment hits the world movies i forgot which one it was the one with tiana tiana leone right they modeled it they modeled the tidal wave by physicists but then hollywood went Oh, the yeah. tidal wave doesn't look scary enough. It's yeah, just going to kill else. everyone. So they made it bigger. Yeah, well, this it's interesting when you watch that film because it, it looks really quite different to the standard film imagery yeah. of a black hole. And, in fact, if you look at the original film with Maximilian Stone. Oh, black hole. Yeah, 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 the black hole, right? And then the, the and robot, the, yeah, the yeah, little the robot. floating robot. Looks yeah. like, it looks like uh, something going down a drain, right? I mean, that's the standard imagery yeah, of a black I hole. I really hope this image is everything we hope it's going to be. Yeah, I'm really <laughs> hoping it looks nothing like anything <laughs> we thought it could be because that would be far more well, fun. Yeah. It, it, over the time frame they've been looking at it, and what you said about the time frame it might take for a star to get enveloped into it, mm. it could be changing too. Oh yeah, and you these know. things are you know these things are they, they're very rapidly you know rapidly engulfing materials around them. So you know you you know we won't see that we won't see the dynamics in this imagery, but we might see something else. So I, I think a lot of people are like really excited about what this will look like. The other thing that happened uh, just on Friday um, or Saturday for us was um, there's a Japanese probe. Uh, called uh what is it now it's um hayabusa 2 this is the second one of these japanese probes that they sent out to have a crack at an asteroid and when i say have a crack i mean that like on friday they actually had this small canister filled with plastic explosives and the idea was they take this particular probe which is about the size of a fridge so it's, it's fairly large actually as probes go and it shot this canister down towards this asteroid and you know, as you might imagine, what happens with plastic explosives? They bombed it. Boom, they bombed it, right? And they, they, they were hoping to create about a 10-metre-wide sort of um, crater. And the idea was what they want to do is expose the under undersurface of this asteroid because if you think if you think of the evolution of our solar system and what's happened there like if you look at the earth it's very hard to work out what materials look like when the solar system was being formed because there's been so much dynamic change since that period whereas when you look at asteroids they're preserved they haven't changed since the very origins of our solar system so they want to look at what the materials were because it tells you something about where our solar system was when it was first being formed so by all accounts, so far, they believe that the the bombing has been successful. And the next step is for the probe to go back to its location, right? Because they, they had to move the probe out of the way. So yeah, imagine they, this. They, the, the fridge gets near the asteroid, drops its little bomb, gets the hell out of there before it goes off, because otherwise the shrapnel might actually damage the probe. Waits a little bit of time, takes a couple of weeks, gets back into position, and eventually will land on that spot, collect some stuff, and by 2020, bring it back to Earth. It's yeah. kind of cool. It's already put two little rovers down. Yeah, yeah, and, it's been doing the, a lot. And the rovers shot bullets into the bullets. meteorite too. Yeah, much to make, smaller. Than, yeah, smaller. Yeah. And they and they expelled some material, but much smaller. This is the sort of grand finale of quite a quite a big bang. But they, and then they've got plans. It's pretty amazing this little fridge because they've got plans for yet another set of rovers, and then 
the things coming back, that is not easy. Normally we yeah. send them out and just let them keep going. Yeah, so this is the real thing about, if, if you think of the various types of materials that have ever been brought back to Earth, I mean, we have heaps of moon rock from the Apollo missions, but we don't have anything else. I mean, we have bits of Mars material, but that's because it got bounced off Mars and ended up on Earth. We haven't actually gone and brought that back. So this sort of asteroid collection stuff is really cool, because as I say, it gives you an insight into what things were like 4.6 billion years ago. Super kind of cool. exciting. Yeah. Take that, immunology. <laughs> anyway, we're going to take a break for some music, folks, and we'll be back in just a moment. We're talking to someone who, well, it's it's going to be funny, I think, Laura. You should be able to <laughs> chime in. Back in a sec, folks. Three. Triple. Welcome back, everybody. You're listening to Einstein and Gogo on 3 R. We divert a little bit from our science programming now to talk about science with Dr. Pam Rana, who is part of the Melbourne International Comedy Festival. Pam, welcome to the studio. Thank you for having me. Look, it's great to have you in there. You have a, uh, you have a particular show coming up, and the, the title caught my eye, which is why I wanted to get you in. It's Dr. Pam presents Kim Kardashian Breaks the Environment. Yes. Oh boy! I, I, it was hope, after twenty-seven years of radio. I was hoping I'd never have to talk about her on air, but it seems that I'm not going to get get away with it. So, tell us a bit about the show. I mean, what's um, this is about climate change, right? So, give us the rundown. What, what are people going to see? Oh boy! I mean, how to, how to break it down? Uh, I I would bill it as a funny, inconvenient truth, <laughs> or uh, more correctly, uh, an anarchist's fourth grade science class. Oh, uh, because I think um, there's been a real departure. Uh, from just talking about how the environment works. And um, I really think it's important, as a doctor, um, I think it's really important um, to have an environment uh, because um, it's basically (laughs) critical uh, for for life, for all life. Uh, And uh, I think uh, think there's some really large gaps in the environmental message that I just, I find baffling. Uh, I I think uh, people don't talk enough about just how an ecosystem functions Mm. and how there's only one species on the planet that's out of step with, uh, you know, the machinery of the planet. Being the polar bears. Uh, Yeah, of course. (laughs) And they're they're bloody getting what they deserve. Yeah, they are. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, by the way, I brought you guys some mandarins. Uh, You mentioned this outside. I got very excited because <laughs> me and my body often have a uh, interaction which which I like to refer to as me eating as many as I can and my body body saying that's enough and that that second part's usually messy but mandarins are one of my favorite fruits so, oh wow yeah, they yeah, yeah. are we being serious right now are there mandarins in that bag? Yeah, yeah, there are. They were yeah. so nice and fresh. Just to clarify. Just, just, oh, yeah, sorry, Laura. Like, it was such a weird convention, but uh, you know how, like, when you go over to someone's house for the first time yeah. and you, you don't come empty-handed? I think that's a, a nice rule. Whenever I c- do radio, I feel like you should also carry on that social convention. like that. Amazing. Yeah, because hey. like, there's something about radio people. That they're all, like, enclosed in their little spaces. Oh, yeah, we've got nothing. And, yeah, they don't, we're starving. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah and I didn't want to bring, hey. like, you know, sugar and, you know, hey, so. If more of our guests brought fruit, yeah. that'd be fantastic. Listen fruit, out, guests. Chocolates, <laughs> alcohol, um, any gifts, actually, any, you yeah. want. Anything you bring in, you can bring in anything you want. Um, poor, poor Jason's out there. He's on next, and I don't think he's brought anything. I know, empty-handed. Just tell him he's been bumped. <laughs> he's, <laughs> he just smiled, so I think, yeah, he's listening. He's listening. <laughs> now, the, uh, so are people going to learn stuff? At the, I mean, you want them to laugh, but the, it sounds like they can learn stuff as well. Yeah, but first, you, uh, I do begin with uh, giving you a little breakdown on who she is, in case you don't know. 
know. Uh, originally, I mean, I have uh, worked on some form of this show uh, on and off for a few years now. I thought it could be an, maybe an educational tool uh, to mold young minds, uh, to sort of, you know, influence them and, and, and draw them away from the allure of, you know, this multimedia machine that's sort of, uh, you know, hand in hand with them turning the planet into a garbage can. Yeah. So I was kind of thinking, maybe we get people thinking about materialism in a different way. Uh, so uh, I called it Kim Kardashian is bad for the environment back then. Uh, and uh, uh, to answer your question, uh, I thought I had to target uh, Kim Kardashian lovers. So, uh, but they 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 probably need a less direct approach. So uh, now I talk to uh, well anyone that will listen. And a lot of these people don't know who she is. So you will learn who she is and why mm. she's so bad. Um, uh, here's a spoiler. She's 12.5% Illuminati lizard, I think, according to my <laughs> research. Is that, uh, is that right? Look, I've, 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 I've done a deep dive into the internet, and uh, I'm, I'm fairly certain. I'm willing to go on record. Yeah. yeah. I mean, if it's on the internet, it's got to be true. Well, I just think if you observe her behavior, it's like pathologically non-earthling. So, right. Yeah. <laughs> well, and, and how does she impact the environment specifically? I mean, what's the what's the deal with it? I mean, beyond the you know the riches and stuff. Well, she's an agent for the apocalypse, obviously. Uh, she's you to be specific, though. I think that uh, she's employed in a larger scheme to brainwash people into buying things they don't really need. Uh, you know, tricking them into you know uh, assuming that value is something that can be purchased. Mm-hmm. And in doing so, uh, yeah, we're destroying uh, our life support systems. Mm, mm. It's, and and in terms of, I mean, in terms of the the comedy element, do you bring to this? I mean, do, do people are they surprised when you when you you put climate up there? You know, climate's such a big serious problem. And so well, we're going to laugh about this for an hour or so. I mean, how, how they how they go together? Well, you know, I I can't I consider myself a comic first and a doctor second because right. I was always a bit of a jokey dork. Uh, and you know, in medicine we learn to communicate bad news, break bad news. You, you do, <laughs> boy. If I got something to tell you about <laughs> e- eating too many mandarins, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I think I know that one. Uh, but uh, yeah. Uh, to uh, you know, I also do believe that one of the major issues that the environmental message is facing is that it is it is too large, it is too difficult mm. to grasp, and it is also too hard and difficult to digest. Uh, I mean, the the biggest marketing tool we have for the environment right now is called an inconvenient truth. What kind of marketing strategy? Goes with inconvenience. Yeah, yeah, it sounds so, bad, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, exactly. We're already like shooting ourselves in the foot, you know. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I'm trying to rebrand environmentalism, make it more fun, more di- more digestible. I want people to feel empowered. You, you get people, you know, to notice things with comedy, get their attention by hmm. getting them to laugh, and then they feel like, hey, yeah, there's there's something that I can do here. You yeah, know, there's a chance they might actually remember it too. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And uh, I mean, I, I highlight, I go back to some really basic uh, scientific principles that we all learned back in the fourth grade that we're all conveniently dismissing, uh, you know, as we troll a lot through, you know, society and now, 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 know, now, in our fast me, fashion and et cetera. Sorry. Go t- on. Pam, tell me with, um, I mean, you, you're a medical doctor. What, how did you get from A to P or whatever it is here? I mean, this is quite a. Diversion. I mean, I, I've, I've met a lot of doctors. They're not funny. <laughs> They're not even vaguely funny. Uh, well, I um, 
you know, there's a there is a bit of an overlap between uh, you know uh, laughter and medicine. Uh, I think you might have heard that oh, one, yeah. uh, and it's me, Doctor Pam. Uh, <laughs> no, uh, I honestly believe uh, laughter isn't the best medicine. I've found that it's vengeance. Uh, so, <laughs> I, uh, but like I said, you know, um, look, you know, I don't think it's very uncommon to find someone that's just one thing and you know I'm a big science dork science fiction was i think my f- where my first love of science sort of came from i mean you know you can't you can't grow up in an indo-canadian family and not have star trek on every day um <laughs> yeah exactly um like how much time do you guys have can we get into star trek discovery at all oh, look, we, could, <laughs> we, could, we could talk about that for hours we could talk about that for hours yeah i mean I, i've got a thing for anson mount you know he's uh like a little man crush going on there because, oh tell, and michael well, burnham i mean yeah. one of the greatest characters ever written in the star yeah, trek yeah. universe absolutely and i mean there's some really excellent writing happening i mean just getting to see the crew sit around the table and talk about how they mm. all have a virus and like this is what star trek is needed this whole yeah, yeah. time yeah yeah um, very different and, and it's for the masses now too it's changed from i think it's it's moved out of the sort of you know always always found an interesting thing is that you could walk down the street wearing a stormtrooper outfit and people would go hey cool you walk down dressed in a star trek Not uniform sure there's a that. chance you're going to get beaten up <laughs> right but it's this is changing well, this, this, this smells of personal experience yeah it does. i know i feel like everyone's yeah. pushing their star trek agenda right about now you got a problem laura well don't brand us all with it <laughs> oh okay Hello. i think we got a star trek hater in the yeah, house i think we do i don't get it i think we do it's Okay. Well, fair enough. I mean, like, the next generation was like basically a soap opera in space. Like, but you know, I think they challenge they yes. they, they address a lot of like social issues. Yeah. But uh, yeah, it's different. going back to how I got from mm. um, medicine to comedy or vice versa, you know, I was always a performance nerd as well. You know, jokey kid just thought, oh, hey, I'd love to do stand up, but that's not for me. And mm. uh, then I saw Russell Peters and yeah, right. realized, oh, okay, that anyone that, can do it. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> I was like, oh, okay, there's someone that looks like me on TV, yeah. and he's doing comedy, and he's not a doctor, and that's amazing. And, you know, I was always in plays and theater, and uh, mm. much to my um, parents' chagrin, I started doing stand-up towards the end of medical school, and have been sort of dabbling in it ever since. Sounds good. Now, yeah. tell us about the show so people know where to go and uh, how to get tickets. Yeah, uh, and basically, the, the whole point of the show is that I am trying to save as many lives as I can. Uh, medicine is great for the one-on-one. But uh, look, if we lose the environment, we're going to lose a lot of people. So uh, starting, oh, we've already had two shows. We've got four more to go. It's twice a week. I'm taking it nice and easy. And um, I'm getting that after work uh, professional crew crowd. Uh, 7 p.m. Uh, at uh, Bar SK in Fitzroy. Great bar. Gamer bar. Lots of cool stuff goes down there. Lots of interesting, like, gamer music nights and, you know, people who are developing new games that come in and they do talks. So that sounds interesting to you. That's a really cool place to check out. The team there is awesome. Oh, they also are um, trialing this great new beer blend that they invented with, like, notes of pineapple. And I swear it tastes like the last days of summer. Uh, oh, right. so, I'm, t- I'm totally know. sold. So what nights is this? Yeah. Uh, Wednesdays and Thursdays. So 7 p.m. So finish your work day, go out, have dinner, have a few drinks, and then come in uh you know, join me in a global revolution. Sounds good. <laughs> Sounds amazing. Pam, thanks so much for coming in and chatting to us. Good luck with the events. Hope they all go well. And uh, keep uh, trying to save the climate. It's good to hear a doctor, a medical doctor, actually trying to save the world. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Folks, uh, we're going to take a break for some station announcements, and we'll be back with another guest in just a moment. Three, triple, 
Uh, welcome back, everybody. You're listening to Einstein and Gogo on 3RRR. In the studio with us now is Dr. Jason Tyden. He's a laboratory head at the Walter and Eliza Hall Institute and the Matheson Century Fellow at the University of Melbourne. He's been on the show before. Jason, welcome back. Oh, thanks for having me. It's great to talk to you because, you know, the, the press stuff coming out with regards to your work is really something, you know, we, we, I remember we talked about, what, two or three years ago about this possibility, and now it's actually happening. It's right. very exciting. So what I want to do first is go back to uh, you know what your work is on with regards to celiac disease and just start there like this is an autoimmune disease can you talk us through what's happening in the body when someone has celiac disease yeah so celiac disease is an immune type illness and um, gluten seems to be the trigger in this disease and so when people with celiac disease consume gluten it triggers an abnormal immune response that Mm -hmm. leads to not just damage in the bowel but around the body so um this can lead to a variety of problems um symptoms like weight loss or diarrhea tummy pain but also what we're really appreciating now is that these effects around the body can cause things like infertility liver disease Mm. osteoporosis even some forms of cancer so Mm. it's not a trivial illness and i think that many people's perception of celiac disease is maybe a bit of a food intolerance maybe people get a bit of bloating but um no it's quite a serious medical illness and Really, at the moment, a gluten-free diet is the only treatment for it. Right. And and where does gluten come from? I mean, where do we find... I mean, what is gluten? So gluten's a very sticky... It's from the Latin word glue, Mm. and it's a sticky protein found in uh, wheat, rye, barley, and oats. So it's a storage protein that gives um, energy to the growing grain. Um, And for most people, it's totally fine. We we consume it, and it's a good protein source. But uh, for people with celiac disease, for some reason, there's components within gluten that's to trigger an abnormal immune response. In terms of the immune system, I mean, you know, we've got an immunologist sitting next to you, I'm sure she'll chime in the moment, but the the thing that I find surprising is that the immune system gets this so wrong. I mean, why why is it that the immune system is... Because essentially it's attacking our... Is it attacking the gluten or is it attacking your own cells? Yeah, it's a great question. It's actually the gluten um, triggers the immune response that then t- attacks our body. Mm. So... Uh, Because gluten comes from the diet, um, it's not considered a true autoimmune disease because autoimmune disease, there's something in the body that triggers Mm -hmm. our immune response against that. Um, So the good thing about this is that if people go gluten-free and take gluten as the trigger out from their diet, then that immune response against the body goes away. Yeah. So what's so special about gluten? Say our body doesn't attack other types of food that we eat, but is, you know, what's so special about gluten that makes our body attack it? Yeah, so it's it's interesting in that gluten, it's a very complex protein. Um, wheat is, is hexaploid, so it's got three times as many genes as the human genome. Um, so it has very complex proteins. And within gluten, there appears to be um, peptides or little fragments of the gluten that for some reason combine really well to our immune cells, particularly if we have certain genetic types or HLA types. And if we have those HLA types, then our immune system can potentially recognise and then target um, the body and, and be, respond to gluten. Uh, but that only happens in people who have the certain genes and then have certain triggers that unmask the disease. So many of us probably have the genes to develop celiac disease, um, but we don't actually develop that abnormal immune response. And we don't really understand what, what triggers or unmasks the disease yet. And what sort of percentage of us have those genes and what's the prevalence of celiac today? Mm, yeah, it's a great question. So about 40 to 50% of the Western population have these susceptibility genes, but about 1.5% of the Australian population have celiac disease. So our natural body's default position is to be tolerant and to, to gluten and to... Rec- 
and not recognise and react badly to it. Um, but something goes wrong in the 1.5% of Aussies who do develop celiac disease. So as people evolved, we've only been eating wheat as people for, what, about 8,000 years? Yeah, so about 10,000 so, years probably from the agricultural revolution, right. So most of human evolution didn't have this problem and had evolved not with, with any concern about it. So in, in 8,000 years, evolution's pretty much wound down for people at this point, so you're just kind of stuck with what we have. Gluten's a real challenge, though. It's in everything. Right. It's added as a bulking agent in so many foods. Drinks have gluten in them. Yep. Um, yep. It's, so, it's everywhere. It's like um, it's added to food nowadays because it's such it gives such great um, physicochemical properties to food. It makes bread nice and light and fluffy. So bakers will add extra gluten to make really nice bread. Uh, it's often added as a sort of agent to give that kind of springiness to things like hot dogs or to allow flavour to be stuck onto foods. So um, the, the Western diet's very high in gluten. Is that something that is, um, has changed substantially? I mean, I know there's the production... The production of food is very different today than it used to be, but is... Is celiac disease and this problem, is it going up? You know, we've seen other allergens like peanuts and stuff where, you know, this, this problem has gone up. And it, it's interesting to me because it means is there some other, other factor in our environment that's also making us more susceptible? Yeah, it's a great question. So we know that in the last 60 years there's been about a fourfold rise right. in celiac disease from studies, you know, in U- United States and Finland. Uh, and the cause for that's not really clear, but um, we believe that one of the kind of key factors here is change of the microbiome in the gut and that certain range of environmental factors may do this, such as uh, infections or overuse of antibiotics. Mm. Um, and possibly even gluten loading in the diet might have an impact as well. So this is a really this is one area of my research that we're quite sort of excited about. And in terms of the potential in the future, if we can identify these trigger factors for disease, mm. we may be able to prevent disease by addressing them. And, mm. and in fact, there are trials going on overseas where children at risk of celiac disease because they have the genes are being um, uh, introduced to probiotics at a young age to see whether you can stop that. Um, prophylactically yeah, sort yeah, of stop. prophylactically yeah, yeah, so right. can you actually prevent disease developing in the first place uh, it's, a, it's a kind of groundbreaking concept in some ways i mean you mentioned western culture in particular but are there are there particular groups around the world that don't get celiac disease or any yeah so it appears to be less common in um asian countries um but again that's partly the, the fascinating thing is if you look at where celiac disease clusters it clusters in areas of high wheat intake which mm-hmm. is a sort of de facto for gluten yep. intake but also high genetic susceptibility and so the highest prevalence anywhere in the world is northern africa in right. algeria where yeah, there's six percent right. prevalence of celiac disease high wheat intake and uh, high genetic susceptibility and if you look at india for instance up in the north in the punjab region lots of wheat intake mm. um and higher amounts of celiac disease in the south it's a rice-based diet much less celiac disease so it, it kind of clusters based on both diet and genetics and so um we used to think it was uncommon in southeast asia for example but now that there's certain pockets where there's a lot of um, wheat intake mm. particularly up the north of china for example lots of celiac disease if you actually look for it yeah interesting i remember uh, i think it was the last time you were on the show you mentioned the the change in the the uh the 
ingestion or our ability to ingest nutrients and so forth was like considering you know, a normal person having uh, a surface area the size of a tennis court right. and someone with celiac disease having something the size of a A4 sheet of paper. That, that was exactly it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, right, how, do you, yeah. how do you survive? Like, how do you actually survive with that? seems like such a monstrous difference in your ability to absorb nutrients. Well, we know that back in the 50s when, um, you know, celiac disease was a big problem and the gluten-free diet wasn't really well introduced, it had a mortality rate. Children right. could die from celiac disease through malabsorption. So this was what we were seeing then was really only the tip of the iceberg, the severe mm. cases. And interestingly now, malabsorption is not so much the big phenomenon. In fact, many people that diagnosis are overweight and, and loss of nutrients is not so much of a big mm. issue. So it's really that systemic immune response, that immune response that affects all around the body that's important. And in fact, that focus on the gut is much less nowadays because not everyone has severe or extensive bowel damage when if, if you're undiagnosed and your immune system is constantly dealing with that presumably it's constantly switched on i mean does that affect your ability to fight off other other pathogens yes we believe it is in fact one of the biggest causes of death in people with celiac disease is sepsis or right, overwhelming okay. infection yeah. um, and one of the reasons for that is appears to be that the spleen doesn't work properly so the spleen mm. shrinks down and the ability to form memory immunoglobulins to fight off infections is mm. impaired particularly against certain bugs like pneumococcus which right. can cause pneumonia so um, uh, infection risk does increase in people with untreated disease yeah, interesting now uh, we're gonna have to take a break for a few minutes just to give people a you know just let and settle down there, you <laughs> okay. know, cook, cook their bread. Um, but what we've got you in, of course, to talk about is this new vaccine that uh, you've been working on for so long and, and it's finally, finally there. So yep. uh, it's very exciting. So we're going to take a short break, Jason. We'll be back in a minute and Fantastic. we'll uh, go through the details of what's, what's now available. Three, triple, Uh, welcome back, everybody. You are listening to Triple R. We've got Jason Tyden in the studio. He's from uh, Walter and Lose Hall Institute in the University of Melbourne. We're talking about celiac disease. And, Jason, the last time you were in, it was probably, I don't know, time flies for me. It's probably three or four years. But um, you were talking about the possibility of generating some sort of vaccination, essentially, against, against celiac disease. And you've made a lot of progress since then. So tell us about that process and where you've gotten to. Yeah, so I guess it, we're, now that we appreciate celiac disease is essentially an immune illness where there's certain cells called T-cells that target gluten and then cause this sort of damaging immune response, we reason that it may be possible to switch off that response. Mm-hmm. Similar to, I suppose, allergy desensitisation approaches. So, for example, people who are allergic to bee venom, they might get injections of small amounts of bee venom into their mm-hmm skin and then over time the immune system stops reacting adversely to that so the key for our research was really defining the parts of gluten that triggered that t-cell response Mm. so that was kind of long um drawn out sort of a research process where we actually involved people with celiac disease who consumed gluten and then induce that immune response in their bloodstream that we could then assess and and really target down and find those little fragments or peptides of gluten that trigger disease and the remarkable finding from this research which went over about eight to ten years was that um there's three little fragments or three peptides of gluten that seem to trigger most of that ab- abnormal immune so response just, just three that's just it, this three seems like a really small 18, number eighteen thousand or more that could potentially target wow. those t-cells was that surprising yeah. it was such a small number it like, was yes yeah. so we know that there's a whole range of peptides that do do that but when you kind of narrow it down to the the key ones that seem mm. to stimulate that strongest response the so-called dominant response then uh it was just three so that was quite game-changing in many ways because it meant that it might be possible to utilize just these three peptides 
peptides mm. in a treatment to target those T-cells. And again, if you use the right protocol, the hope is that you could then switch off that T-cell response so that when people with celiac disease consume gluten, they didn't get the adverse symptoms or health effects from it. Is it the same three in everyone? Well, it's a great question. If they have the same genetic type, right, so if you're right. the so-called DQ2, the common gene that's seen in celiac disease in 90% of cases, it's remarkably consistent. Those three come right up at the top pretty yeah. much every time. Wow. Yeah. And so, so what do you do? So you know, you, know the, you know the three peptides that are a problem, and it's like the, 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 the bee sting analogy. I mean, what, what, do you, what do you give to people then to prevent them from being, you know, having that allergic reaction essentially to, to those peptides? Yes. Yeah, so this was the real challenge because no one had ever before uh, undertaken this approach where you're giving peptides for an immune-based illness mm. like an autoimmune disease mm. to try to switch it off. So a lot, of, a lot of guesswork went into the initial studies to try to establish the right doses and the protocols to establish an, uh, a, a kind of a, appropriate response. So um, we're now up to phase two clinical trials, which basically means that um, these are the studies to show that the treatment actually works. Yep. The, the phase one studies were completed, which showed that um, the treatment that is tolerated by people and right. safe, um, and it does seem to trigger these T cells in the way we're expecting. So, um, and interestingly, if you give a low dose and then work up, people tolerate it very well. But if you give a higher dose at the start, then people often had symptoms as if they'd consumed some gluten. Oh, right, yeah. So it's kind of yeah. consistent yeah, with yeah. how we expect it to work. Hmm. Um, hmm. Laura. Yeah. So, Jason, I was going to ask, so is this a, this a therapeutic vaccine? So patients that already have celiac, this is who you're administering the vaccine to? Yes, that's right. Can you go the other way around? Can you have people who have the risk factors, the HLA-DQ, was it? Um, yes. And then administer the vaccine and hope that they would never... Um, Mm. Yeah, so I suppose that's that it's absolutely one potential way to, to prevent the disease by vaccinating against it. Would that ever happen um, or is the incidence too low? No, well, the prevalence is common. It's 1.5% of the population, yeah, and, and you can identify those at risk because of the genetics. Um, and we're actually looking at research to look at genomic approaches where we look at the whole genes to see if we can improve um, defining risk for disease development. Um, I suppose... The, the, the goal now is to target those people with active disease and as a therapy, as you say. Um, to prevent disease, I think there's a whole lot of other ethical and kind of considerations about, you know, what's the true risk for that individual? Could you actually be um, triggering off other ab, uh, immune responses that we're not expecting? Yeah. So there's a whole yeah, lot of things un, un, unaddressed yet. So for the patients with celiac who you're treating, what's the readout as, of whether it worked? Do you yeah. start to reintroduce little bits of gluten yeah, back in? Yeah, it's a great question. So, you know... As a, as a gastroenterologist, I've been looking after patients. I care about, obviously, their symptoms, but I also care about their gut damage and their antibodies and, and their overall health. But when, when the whole field of celiac disease treatment is in its infancy, really, and the FDA really want to see a benefit on symptoms. So it's kind of turned, us, turned the field on its head in some ways to say that, well, what we need to really show is that people's symptoms are protected when they're exposed to gluten. So this phase two trial is really primarily looking at those person's symptoms. So if they get symptoms to gluten, they can get into the study. And then after treatment, which could be either the active treatment or placebo, it's a 50-50 chance they'll get one or the other. They will then be gluten challenged with either real gluten or placebo, and that will happen on several occasions. And that will uh, give us a readout of whether the treatment might actually abolish or prevent 
symptoms coming on. So it's it's a symptom-based thing. Of course, we're going to look at gut damage and immune things, but they're kind of not the primary focus. So, Jason, one of the things I find fascinating about this particular problem is if if you compare it to something like the you know the bee sting, as you said, you know, there's there's a fair amount of material produced by a bee sting. You know, like we're not getting a small little dose there; we're getting a pretty big dose, and we react really badly to it. But in terms of um, gluten and celiac disease. I'm assuming you only need the smallest amount of gluten for those peptides to switch our immune system on. Is that is that right? So it's a, it's a very small quantity. Yeah, so it does appear to be quite small for some people, but there's a great range of variability mm. between individual responses, which we don't exactly understand why some people can have gluten for a couple of weeks and not get a huge mm. amount of damage in their gut, and some people will only have a small amount and get damage. Um, but I think what's fundamental is that abnormal T-cell response. So the hope is if, yep. you, if you can switch that off, then you know that will allow um, gluten back in the diet yeah and so they could then so this is not just uh to deal with the occasional contamination of foods this is actually to allow them to go back and you know eat bread uh or, you know normal bread <laughs> not, not the disgusting <laughs> that would stuff be the, yeah absolutely yeah. that would be the ultimate goal is to allow them an unrestricted diet um and obviously uh the first point would be show you could protect against contamination but if you can protect against normal meals every day that would be the best but you know the quality of life for people with celiac disease is substantially impacted by mm. the need to be strictly gluten-free 24 mm. 7 um so even if it was to protect people from inadvertent low-level exposure that would be helpful but obviously if we can actually restore the normal default of being being tolerant to gluten, yep. and the hope is that you could just have a normal diet like everyone else without celiac yeah. disease. So you're in phase two right now. When when do you think it will be before you know the average person with celiac disease can go to their GP and 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 look at getting this sort of vaccination? Yeah, it's always it's the hardest question to yeah. to answer. I mean, the, the trial, the phase two trial, should be completed by the end of this year. Mm-hmm. Recruitment's gone spectacularly around, well around the globe, so in the US, Australia, and. New Zealand, so we should have results then. And then usually what happens is a phase three follows to really define the optimal dosing yep. of the regimen and how much people will be protected from how much gluten. Um, so, you know, it's usually in the order of several years. So there's a lot of ifs there. Obviously, it needs to be, this phase two needs to be successful. Um, but, you know, I think that it highlights that there's a lot of interest uh, for better solutions and just a strict gluten-free diet and mm. there's a lot of research looking at other approaches as well it, enzymes and different things like that it's interesting to me because there's an entire industry now um, that's built up around providing gluten-free foods and have these guys come after you <laughs> yeah. like, like there's big money yeah. in this yes big yes money. yeah a lot of them have asked you know when do you think your treatment's going to be available <laughs> yeah. should i should i launch my brand or not yeah um but you know what i think that it's interesting in that the driver for this market for gluten-free is not just the people with celiac disease right, and it's arguably it's broader than that it's yeah. the people who identify as being gluten sensitive or, or gluten yeah. intolerant or um wheat intolerant um yeah. and in a way it's a two-edged sword i think there's certain positives to that because it means that the availability of gluten-free mm, yeah. is much better yep. but the negative side is i think there's a kind of a loss of distinction between the gluten-free diet as a true medical treatment for celiacs versus a kind of almost lifestyle choice yeah. or a bit of a fad diet, which really, you know, if you if you boil it down, the gluten-free diet's not inherently healthy. And if you make the wrong choices with a gluten-free diet, it can be high in sugar and mm. fat. And it's not, you know, if you don't have celiac disease, it's not particularly that 
um, you know, there's no real reason to be adopting it. Doesn't help with weight loss or those. Yeah. yeah, it's interesting that you say that because, of course, it is you know widespread. You know, being gluten free can be healthy for many different reasons. And certainly, when you go to restaurants, there's an option for gluten free. And if it's because people might think it's a fab diet, they might not take it so seriously that just a tiny bit of gluten, if you mm. don't cross contaminate the cutlery or a toaster or something like this, then you know, yeah, it's very problematic. Yeah, it's really problematic. Absolutely. And a lot of it, the patients with celiac disease will say, "Look, I need gluten free diet because I'm." Yeah. Just to add that extra level of, I suppose, authenticity and, and a need for yeah. the diet. They shouldn't have to do that, but they often do. Well, Jason, uh, not that I want to put these people out of business, but I certainly hope that in the next few years your uh, your vaccine's widely available. And um, it's great to talk to you again. I mean, what about four years from now? We'll get you back on, and you'll be you'll be selling this stuff. It'll all be done. It's um, it's fabulous work, and as you say, it's ten years worth of uh, hard research of you know collecting all these samples and looking for these proteins. And the fact that would you say eighteen thousand in this three uh, right yeah yes. i mean yep. wow mm-hmm. but it's such you know it's such a needle in a haystack to work out which ones um so well done um congratulations and we look forward to this being available to people in the relatively near future exactly absolutely thank you uh, Dr. Jason Titan is a laboratory head at the Walter and Eliza Hall Institute and the Matheson Century Fellow at the University of Melbourne. We're pretty much out of time. So, uh, Dr. Laura, good to see you. Great to see you. Thanks great, for having us. Glad show. to have you in the country all the time, not like <laughs> the good old days where you're skirting around the God knows where. Um, good to have you hanging around. Dr. Ray, good to have you. Good to see you. And Lou's been doing our Twitter feed. I'm Dr. Shane. We're going to hand over to the team from Eat It, who are madly waving at us from the other studio with their gluten in gluten foods and uh, you've been listening to Einstein and Gogo on 3RRR remember science is everywhere and we'll chat to you again next Sunday this has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne truly independent community radio want to hear more check out our website at rrr.org.au